Hello everyone, I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Eric Johnson and Keely Severson and we are exposing mold. Today, we are going to talk about some interesting aspects of chronic fatigue syndrome in honor of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Awareness Month. Now, why do we talk about chronic fatigue syndrome all the time? Well, it has a very, very unique history with mold. So, Eric, please take it away. Back in the 1980s, the big deal that was going across the country was the chronic active Epstein-Barr virus syndrome. It was a state of unrestrained EBV in normal, healthy adults that wasn't happening before. This shouldn't happen. No adult should have the kissing disease. That was the, the, the teenage thing when you start swapping spit and you kiss somebody with EBV and you get this disease. But it goes away after a month, month and a half. And then you have lifelong immunity, which is a good thing because now you can make out with whoever you want. And you don't have to worry about EBV because you're covered. So the kissing disease was not necessarily a bad thing. It was a rite of passage. Now you can have sex and, you know, not, not worry about it anymore. So that's really kind of cool. But adults were showing up with chronic mono, mononucleosis, the proliferation of B cells because the EBV gets into the B cells mortalizes them, makes them not die. So you get a huge number of B cells, and this is picked up by the monospot test. And what Dr. Paul Cheney found was that there were people with the inability to control viruses, but they didn't have EBV. It was like HHV6 or parvovirus or cytomegalovirus, but they had the same problem keeping EBV in restraint. Well, Dr. Stephen Strauss of the NIH, who's one of the big EBV proponents, he was hoping to create a new syndrome. It was going to be called sporadic neuroasthenia. Impressive name. But basically, it was to address this active EBV problem, which he thought, being a herpetic virus, that he could treat with the cyclovir. So cyclovir is a pretty good drug against herpes viruses. It works great for um, uh, herpes simplex. So they hoped that he hoped that it would do the same thing. And his plan, as far as I can tell, was to create this new syndrome and treat all these billions and millions of people with adult mononucleosis with the cyclovir. And he would have the patent on this treatment, and they were going to make billions. Billions and billions of dollars. It was going to be huge. I mean, it, it was going to be the biggest thing to ever hit because 96% of the population has uh, EBV, but they hold it in latency. And with all the millions of people across the country that could no longer control it, that meant that they were going to just have the stranglehold on a, a new paradigm. It was going to be very lucrative for the CDC and NIH. So he walked into the uh, Homes Committee in 1987, thinking that this great thing was going to happen. And in the middle of it, Dr. Holmes hands out the Tahoe study, which is a reflection of Dr. Cheney's evidence showing 
that the same disease occurred even if the person had no EBV whatsoever, totally EBV negative. Dr. Cheney collected 19 patients for this express purpose. And he told me about it, he told me why he was doing it. And I was the first one of the 19. His goal was to stop Dr. Strauss from doing this because it wasn't necessarily a problem of EBV alone. And that's all the new chronic fatigue syndrome was for. So Dr. Holmes hands out this study and Steven Strauss knew this paper was in progress. He knew it was coming, but he didn't think it was gonna be in place before this um, committee had wound up its business. He was hoping to ram in his new syndrome before this paper came out. And that way he'd be able to go ahead and proceed with his EB dominant syndrome and launch into treating everybody. And as Dr. Byron Hyde, who is present, says within a few seconds of seeing this study, he didn't even have to read it. Strauss knew exactly what it was. And he went ballistic. He starts screaming, those fucking patients, those goddamn patients, they ruined me. Why was Strauss so upset? Well, nobody could understand. At the time, Dr. Hyde thought he was having some kind of seizure because he was so violent. Well, if you knew what Strauss was up to, that this was the plan, well, then it stands to reason. He just got the rug ripped out from under him. Who wouldn't be pissed? <laughs> you have a chance to be a multi-millionaire or even a billionaire, and uh, the patients come along and screw that up for you. You're going to be a little pissed off about it. And from that moment, Stephen Strauss decided that the only suitable name for this new syndrome was chronic fatigue syndrome, and it was all a bunch of shit. It was just fatigue, and it had no basis. I, it feels like at, at that point, it felt like he just was like, ah, just, I'm done with this. Like, he just wanted to just not deal with it anymore after he kind of lost his big break. Right. And um, this is well described in Hillary Johnson's book, Osler's Web, how Strauss was just on fire to validate the EBV syndrome right up to the point of entering the Holmes Committee. And within a second, I mean, literally within seconds of, of seeing the, the Talos study, Strauss became the biggest opponent of the syndrome, did everything he could to cast down on it, denigrate it, call it hysteria, say there was no basis for it. He just turned into an absolute demon. And the choice of the bad name, chronic fatigue syndrome, occurred in that very moment. Dr. Holmes had his own name. He was calling it the title, the working title for his paper was a, a mononucleosis-like syndrome. To mean it was like mononucleosis, but it wasn't mononucleosis. So he was going to call it CMLS, chronic mononucleosis-like syndrome, CMLS. That's really not a bad name, seamless. You can pronounce that. It's even better than CFS, and it describes exactly what the problem is. A syndrome that's like mononucleosis, but it's not mononucleosis. It's self-explanatory. But that was rejected, along with myalgic encephalomyelitis, post-viral fatigue syndrome, and every other reasonable name. And the only name that would do for Stephen Strauss was chronic fatigue syndrome. 
just the process of how this name was selected should tell people there's something wrong with this picture and ask what's going on. And that's what I told Dr. Cheney. I said, the sheer badness of the name will have doctors wondering what the hell happened. And they'll come and ask and we can explain it to them. And they never asked. They simply accepted the name at face value as if the CDC just saw tired people. So did they ever um, investigate the origins of where this Epstein-Barr virus came from? No. So that's completely unknown. Like the origins of HHV-6, chronic Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, all this stuff, like... Those origins have never been looked into. Like, I'm wondering if they were some sort of like gain, gain of function gone bad or something sort of like COVID. Well, actually, that's what um, Gary Holmes explicitly said when he came to Incline Village. That the reason for the visit is that they suspected a gain of function virus, a mutated version of Epstein-Barr virus that had acquired new contagious properties. That was the whole point. And this is in the newspapers. It's not a secret. So that was, people don't understand why Gary Holmes came. They think he was there to investigate just a mystery illness. No, his remit was clearly spelled out. He was only there as a junior epidemiologist to find out, was the Tahoe outbreak an incident of contagious infectious mononucleosis? That's it. That's why he sat down in the office and looked over the results of the serology test, because that is what was relevant. Were these people exhibiting signs of infection, of acquiring um, EBV in a person-to-person contagious manner? And of course, that's when he ran into Dr. Cheney's evidence that, first of all, not everybody had Epstein-Barr virus, plus when he demanded healthy controls be tested, some of the healthy controls had the same fluctuating levels indicating they were on the verge of acquiring the same disease, but just hadn't hit the wall yet. So he actually expressed this in this paper, and it's written right into the chronic fatigue syndrome preamble. The uh, evidence showed that the test was unreliable. The EBV serology test was unreliable to detect the condition, which is true, and that further research is needed to isolate patients with a possibly unique clinical entity, meaning a virus behaving in a new way, some sort of -of gain-of-function problem. Now, you ask, did anybody ever look into that? No. (laughs) Did they contact Um, Richard Dubois, who was the first researchers to publish on the new adult mononucleosis back in 1983? No, they did not. And he was disappointed. This also is an Osler's web. He expected that researchers would descend from all over the place going, this appears to be something new. Let's find out what it is. And they never did. So when Strauss and James Jones separately produced papers in 1985 talking about this new syndrome of chronic active Epstein-Barr virus, 
I'm sure they expected people to come to see them and find out what was going on. No, they did not. So researchers didn't look into any aspect of the creation of chronic fatigue syndrome, not the prehistory, not the shift from EBV to something, something else. They never looked into any part of it. And they applied the Epstein-Barr virus test as if the finding of EBV alone was make or break as to whether you have this disease, which is simply not the case. The EBV test was only a sentinel, it was a red flag, a marker for fluctuating for titers that would indicate that you were no longer able to keep a virus in restraint. Do you think, okay, so the CDC was called out to investigate to see if this was actually gain of function, something went wrong. I know that you, um, you're, you're stating the objective facts, right? You're saying they were there, you know, they left and they didn't follow up further once, you know, you guys discovered what was going on in the town. Um, where are they going with this? Do you think where, do you think the CDC knew and they didn't tell anyone and they said, okay, we know what this is. Let's move on. You know, but in some insidious way, they're like, all right, we're going to, we're going to ignore it and just say no findings, whatever. We're not going to revisit it because we know what's going on here. Well, obviously they're not going to write out a confession. <laughs> so it, it's, it's just kind speculation. Of like, yeah. It's like a, a politician. If um, somebody's guilty of corruption, graft, racketeering. You, you'll never find any piece of paper that says, oh, yeah, I did it. But what you can do is look at their behaviors and compare what they know to how they act and check their bank accounts and find out their action is consistent with nothing else except total corruption. And, yeah, that's how the CDC behaved. They acted as if they couldn't see the barn door in front of their eyes. They, they acted so blind that no medically educated person could possibly fail to find something of interest in what they were looking at. And somehow they managed to <laughs> succeed in not seeing anything whatsoever. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorship. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. How do these people sleep at night? This is crazy. They're they're bad. I mean, they're really bad. I, I've often thought that um, the the harm that they've created, they really do belong in prison. 
Because in, in, in time of war, if somebody lends aid and comfort to the enemy as a traitor, if they're in the, in the service, they are deliberately undermining your own side in a way that causes death. That's grounds for the firing squad. And that's exactly what the CDC has done. You bet they know. They, these are not stupid people. So when um, Dr. Holmes saw the um, unreliability of the EBV serology test and the fact that it was showing precursor manifestations in healthy controls, he suddenly bailed out of the investigation. He left incline. And Dr. Cheney did his best to try to get Dr. Holmes to take blood with him from the original cohort. And Dr. Holmes refused to do this. And he said that he was going to follow up on this by studying blood from patients closer to Atlanta, um, th their own study group. Well, now, wait a minute. The, the people that they were seeing back east were sporadic cases, not contagious cases. So if there was a gain of function, <laughs> you would look for it in the outbreak not in the sporadic cases. So for him to refuse to take this blood and look for what he considered to be a gain of function, mutated, contagious illness in people who were not contagious and not part of an outbreak is something that no epidemiologist would ever do. They know better than that. So people say, well, you're talking conspiracy here. Well, call it what you want, <laughs> but it sure looks like a conspiracy to me. Hey, well, uh, I think people are seeing the conspiracy theorists uh, being right these days. So <laughs> I don't know if it's much of, yeah. know, much of a conspiracy. So you, you ask, was the origin of the Epstein-Barr virus ever followed up on? And uh, of course, it was not. But Dr. Cheney, when he called me in and explained all this to me, when he asked me to serve as a prototype for this new syndrome, he had a, a choropleth map, a situation map. It's like a battlefield map showing what we know about the situation, how it's progressing, you know, where it is, where it's the worst, what it's doing, blah, blah, blah. He just took a map of the United States and he's putting pins in it that reflect the progression of where it started, where this was first reported back east, Massachusetts, Lyme disease, at about the same time, at the same place. And he said, and these pins went across the country in a steady progression in about a two to three year period. Like, the widening circle, like an epicenter, like ripples spreading out from an impact event. And this was true for Lyme disease and the reactivated EBV followed the same exact rippling pattern spreading outward from an epicenter. I am just shocked by this information. So, and first and foremost, Dr. Cheney, wow. Like, what doctor is doing that these days? <laughs> None of them. 
for him to like be this committed, like this type of doctor in a small town to be committed to this and like doing this level of like investigation is highly impressive. Kudos to him. So he discovered that it, it started in the East and then it started to ripple. Like there was more cases and more cases and more cases similar to what was seen sort of in, in Lyme disease on like, what was it? Swan city or Plum Island or oh, Plum know. Island, right? Mm-hmm. Plum Island, <laughs> Swan <Yeah>. City, <laughs> boy. <laughs> so, was Plum Island sort of the epicenter for Lyme disease then, and then it just rippled throughout the country? Exactly. And this is well known in Lyme disease circles that you can just look at the progression how it spread out from a central point and go, "Wow, this is signs of something that emanated from this particular location." And Dr. Cheney put together a situation map for Epstein-Barr virus, which showed the exact same progression from the exact same place. Then that, what does that tell you? I mean, you can't jump to conclusions, but in your mind, you're thinking, if this has an epicenter similar to Lyme disease, and we know that it's been proven to be factual thank you to chris newby's work that lyme disease was like a biological warfare testing situation gone wrong then why would it not be the same for this other situation over here like this is blowing my mind man eric i feel like you come up with these things so randomly like i've (laughs) been around you for almost almost two years now Where was this information hiding? Well, I told you, I can't tell you everything I know all at once. It's too much. I mean, you've seen that we've talked for hours and hours and hours, and it's like it never ends. There's always something else. Sorry, I pressed something wrong. I mean, that. so what, what, like, I want to know what's going on in your mind. Like, when you when you walked into Cheney's office, he brought out this map and, like, started talking to you about all this stuff. Like, what were you thinking? Well, I was thinking, this is Lyme disease. <laughs> it's obvious. It's, it's got to be Lyme disease. But that's not the scientific way. And what happened was this virus came through and it acted in a way that Lyme disease cannot. I mean, the Tahoe flu did go from person to person with a four to seven day lag time. Lyme disease can't do that. So therefore, as a prototype for chronic fatigue syndrome, it would be disingenuous of me to say, well, it's Lyme disease, when what Gary Holmes was called for was a contagious thing, how EBV was acting weird. So the only way to really resolve this is to go okay, put out these clues, and when the researcher becomes interested, then explain how they all fit together. If you uh, read Osler's web or listen to any of the Hillary Johnson interviews, she talks about how the mystery virus uh, spread from the very early, well, 1970s, late 1970s, early 1980s, how it spread across the country and then hit Los Angeles about uh, 1984, 1985, and then moved up into San Francisco, where Dr. Carol Jessup saw it. 
It was Herb Tanny down in uh, Los Angeles reporting it before the Lake Tahoe outbreak. What so, could move across the country like that? Like, what do you make of that, of like an actual movement across the whole country? Well, that's the curious thing. Dr. Cheney said this moved far too slow to be a virus. Because any, any normal flu-like virus would go across the country. I mean, rapidly, it's like seasonal. It's just almost instant. Because this is much slower. So the suspect organism most likely to fit that was either Lyme disease, except this was acting contagious, which didn't make sense. So that kind of put uh, it in the court of mycoplasma. Dr. Garth Nicholson's cell wall deficient bacteria. So do you think that might have been a bacteria that was making its way across the country at the same time that buildings were getting worse, leaving everyone like in a weakened state or, or what were you saying? Yeah, my initial um, theory, and I told this to the doctors even before I met Dr. Cheney, I said, this is acting like a bacterial infection. And if we are loaded with bacteria and bacteria don't like antibiotics, is it possible that the reason we're reacting to moldy buildings so bad is because mold produces antibiotics and the bacteria in our bodies don't like it. That's that was, so interesting because everyone has some kind of, like not everyone, but secondary bacterial infections are so common for people exposed to mold. Yeah, I suggested that maybe this reaction isn't our normal human reaction. It's what the bacteria in our bodies is doing when they sense these powerful antibiotics. Oh, interesting. Like they're acting up like it could pulse them to make them stronger if they're not resistant to it and like in their attempt to survive. Yeah. Holy cow. That's crazy. Yeah, that's kind that's of crazy. That's so interesting. I mean, in an interesting way, not in like a, <laughs> you should be locked up kind of way. In, in a real sucky, horrible <laughs> type of way. Kind of interesting. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, we're, if we're looking for something that fits the facts, it has to fit the progression, it has to fit the, the timing, you know, it has to match what we see going on. And if you do it the way Dr. Cheney did and the way he taught me to do it, it kind of funnels everything down to a few specific suspects. So what would you say to the people who are going to listen to this and say, Eric thinks mold illness is really mycoplasma bacterial infection? Because I think that'll come out with people listening to this. I tell you the same thing I've always said. I'm not a scientist and I don't have a lab in my back pocket, so I don't know. This is all speculation. But the attractive thing about the mycoplasma is that if you think of a weaponized one like Garth Nicholson did, mycoplasma fermentans incognitus, well, he doesn't find that in everybody. So he got kind of stomped flat because in order to fit everybody getting sick, you got to find the same agent in everybody. So then that throws it back into the final common pathway category. And I came up with this crazy idea 
And I said to Dr. Cheney, well, what if, what if a thought experiment, the mold really was getting worse? And there's a synergistic relationship between mold, toxic mold, and bacteria. Then you might see multiple species of bacteria and mycoplasma capitalizing on the environmental shift of buildings getting more pathogenic. And Dr. Cheney said, well, according to that theory, that means that all of the buildings would have had to become worse over this time period. And we don't know of any mechanism that would cause buildings to go bad all across the country in such a short period of time. I go, well, according to the thought experiment, if this were to happen, then you will see many, many people complaining about sick buildings and about mold in particular. So when he asked me, and you can make a prediction, if this thought pans out, this is what will happen. And I felt so strongly about this that upon him asking me to serve as a prototype for a new syndrome, I, it put me on the spot. I wasn't expecting it, but I thought, holy crap, the first words spoken over a new syndrome are going to be memorable, something, something that will go down in the history book. So I better say something really profound. And I thought about it for a second. And I said this, I have an inexorably increasing reactivity to mold that grows progressively worse no matter where I live or how well I try to take care of myself. If whatever happened here progresses, we will see millions of people complaining about toxic mold in the way I am. There will be carnage. This was before toxic mold was even discovered. It wasn't even in the literature back then. And I made what I considered to be the most outrageous prediction anybody could ever possibly say. Well, look where we are. Well, and I just want <clears throat> to pause here for a moment and really take in what this is because this is you knowing that this illness was going to explode to the point that everyone had a mold story back before there were mold doctors, back before the term mold illness existed, before Dr. Richie Shoemaker was known as the mold doctor, and even before mold was in any medical textbook literature, you made this prediction because of your reaction. And I think that that's something that's really underestimated and um, like just even maybe undervalued when people hear it because the magnitude of you predicting this was going to happen and then it actually happens, I feel like is very validating for your theory because obviously the structure that you had that supported the foundation of those thoughts that were built upon had to be true for this to actually project the way that you said that it would. That scares me. Very scary. Yeah, I made the most dire, the most horrible prediction at a time when that whole thing seemed ludicrous, impossible. And it happened. And the, like to really understand at a time where like mold illness was not on the record. It's not like there was mold blogs and mold doctors and social media. It was like this was really from a time that this was unknown. 
Like the only reference literally in the Bible. That's all people can say to you. Yeah, this was before Dr. William Croft entered the first peer-reviewed paper on trichotheses into the medical literature. So there was no mention of toxic mold until after the chronic fatigue syndrome outbreak. And nobody, no doctors even talked about it for the another 20 years. That's what I think is the key point here. It's not like you are somebody who heard about mold illness from the internet and then decided you were going to talk about it and make yourself relevant in this popular paradigm. You observed this and you sounded the warning bell and you told every doctor that you could get yours to listen. And instead of them listening to you, validating you, giving credit, wanting to work with you to learn more, they ignored you and then turned around, pivoted to make a move to be the mold expert. And that's what we're dealing with with doctors. Add the extra layer of like even the U.S. military, like seeing where the where the landscape of medicine is going to go. Like they're like, oh, yeah, we know doctors are going to behave like pieces of shits <laughs> right before it happens. And you can trust and believe that they are. And just the amazing fact that I had that training that doctors were going to act that way. What an incredible fluke that somebody in my position with my background wound up being the first prototype for a syndrome. You have been positioned. Now I understand why you never give up because you have been in such a unique position to be in witness of all of this madness and seeing the progression evolution. And it's like, your predictions are so dire that you feel like you have a responsibility to, to humanity to like inform them. Like this is what's going to happen if we don't get things together. So that's exactly why I say that when people say like Eric's talking the right way, or you can't say it that way or shut up, Eric, it's like, do you comprehend what we are talking about? This is an actual emergency that affects everyone. If you wouldn't tell someone running out of a burning building to keep their voice down, then you should probably use the same line of thought here. And if you can't comprehend that, then like dig a little deep to see what's right in front of you, or what's going on, because everyone's health and future kids depends on this. And I'm not exaggerating. If this exploded this much in the last 20 years, what's going to happen in 20 more or 30 more or 40 more with nothing being done about this? And corporations continuing to own this country, chemically poisoning everyone. What's going to happen? My son already has second generation subluxation of joints. Me being the first generation from my years of mold exposure. His shoulder pops through his armpit. He had to quit playing baseball at age nine because he couldn't throw a ball without his shoulder popping through his armpit. What's going to happen to his kids if they grow up in mold and their kids? Like this is a generational problem. We had that interview with those fish researchers and they said the effects are shown in future generations. And that's what I'm seeing in my own family. What's going to happen four generations down? Are people going to be able to stand? Or are their joints going to just give out? We don't know. But we're probably going to find out the hard way. And then it what? Is. Are we going to let these researchers tell us it's all our failing genetics? To add on to what Keely says, just in, in my generation, the types of things that we see in these talent shows with little girls bending themselves into impossible positions were things that 
no human could do. Maybe a Chinese gymnast after years of training. And now people with no training whatsoever can twist themselves into a pretzel and people find this amusing rather than being scared to death. Yeah, and I really worry about those EDS people. Like, if you try to even mention mold to them, they will scream at you. Your two years of internet search isn't equivalent to my living with this disease. And it's like, look, I know it's so frustrating being chronically sick, living with a disorder that doctors have told you is only genetic and being gaslit your whole entire life. But if you have chronic EDS, chronic POTS, call yourself a screening, you really need to look into the mold connection unless you want to go ahead and pass generational illness onto every single person in your bloodline after you. Your choice. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit, and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support, and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit exposingmold.org for more information.